Even as I boarded the plane last March, I don't think I was sure why I was going to Selma. Calling it a trip to Selma was something of a euphemism because most of the time away would be spent at a conference in a hotel in Birmingham, followed by a day trip to Selma. I had some anticipation, some sense of adventure, but as far as the purpose, the motivation, I can't say I was really sure. I did want to see that bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the one I had read about many years ago in John Lewis's memoir, Walking in the Wind. I thought it might be moving to be physically present in the very place where 50 years ago, black marchers had summoned up the courage to take a stand against horses, batons, and tear gas in the name of voting rights they did not yet have. Maybe I hope to get a sense of where people find courage like that. I needed some reading material for the journey. The day before we left for Selma, the United States Department of Justice released the findings of its six-month investigation into the civil rights violations by the Ferguson, Missouri Police Department. It was all over the news, seemed like a fitting subject. So I downloaded the report to my iPad and read it on the flight down south. I got a little more than I bargained for. The report, if you haven't yet read it, is a devastating narrative of pervasive and systematic abuses of power by the Ferguson Police Department that results in daily violations of the civil rights of its residents, predominantly African-Americans, in Ferguson. Unauthorized stops, unconstitutional searches, improper uses of force, restrictions on freedom of speech, unreasonable fines. I could not believe my own naivete to have assumed that a city like this could not exist in the United States. By the time the plane landed, I was filled with despair of how many generations it would take to repair the damage inflicted by the police and local government on the African Americans in this one small city. And so on to the conference. The Living Legacy Project designed the conference in three parts over three days. First, a look back 50 years ago to the Voting Rights March with stories and reflections from those who had been there and tributes to the families of the martyrs, Jimmy Lee Jackson, the Reverend James Reeb, and Viola Liuzzo. The second day focused on where we are now and where we are going with rousing keynote speeches from current leaders. And the third day was a bus trip to Selma to take part in a reenactment of the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. My head is still full of that weekend, but I want to share with you this morning three experiences that made an impact on me one from each of those days of the trip. The Reverend Dr. Mark Morrison Reed opened the conference. Reed has studied the Selma Voting Rights March. His book, Selma Awakening, How the Civil Rights Movement Tested and Changed Unitarian Universalism, and analyzes the roles you use played in Selma and its aftermath. In his keynote, he told how after the marchers were savagely beaten and bloodied on their first attempt to cross the bridge, which was broadcast on national television, a call went out for people to come to Selma to bolster the ranks of the marchers. But not just a figurative call or a soundbite on the news. Reed explained that before dawn on Monday morning, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. sent out a telegram calling upon clergy of all faiths to come to Selma. Dana McLean Greeley, then president of the UUA, was one of the people who received that telegram. 
King also personally called UU minister Homer Jack and Jean Reeves, whom he had known for many years. Greeley, Jack, and Reeves called other UU ministers around the country to urge them to go to Selma. Several of those ministers had attended Boston School of Theology with King. And each of those ministers called others, and so on, and so on. John Cummins, our minister emeritus, got a call. Reed explained that although ideology and justice and the righteousness of the cause were clearly on people's minds, it was their relationships that caused them to go to Selma. When someone calls and asks you to go, you go. Reed asked us, with whom are you in relationship? It became the mantra for the rest of his talk. How might your relationships make a difference in your life and even transform your life? Who are you in relationship with? With whom am I in relationship? Reed's story resonated with me um, in several ways. On what I thought was a superficial level, one of the reasons I went to Selma was that Justin asked the Board of Trustees to consider going. I wrestled with it, the cost, the time out of the office, not knowing whether it would be really worth it. But, you know, I don't like to say no to my minister. <laughs> and eventually I said to Katie, as you heard, I think we should go to Selma. And her initial reaction was, response was, that it was fine if I wanted to go. I do go to my fair share of out-of-town conferences. But she wasn't necessarily interested. And I said, no, I want you to come with me. A good friend of mine who's been very involved in racial justice work at Unity Church in St. Paul initially told me she wasn't going to Selma. A couple of weeks later, that changed. The Reverend Rob Eller Isaacs had called her and asked her to go. So we had all unwittingly lived out Reed's keynote thesis before we got to Selma. Throughout the conference and in the days since, I have heard that question echo in my head, with whom are you in relationship? What connections do you seek? Which friendships do you cultivate? With whom do you choose to build alliances? A goal so simple and achievable on the one hand, surely this was work that I could do, but so daunting on the other hand, with whom are you in relationship? And that was just the opening keynote on day one. On the second day, I attended a breakout session led by Reverend Krista Taves of Emerson Unitarian Universalist Chapel. Emerson is a small church of about 100 members just outside St. Louis. They went through a rough patch when they decided in May of 2014 to sell the building that they had purchased and renovated only 12 years earlier and decide to become a renting church, to choose to focus on their mission and vision rather than the upkeep of bricks and mortar. They moved out to the western suburbs of St. Louis. That lot, they lost some member support over that. Then, three months later, in August, Michael Brown was shot and killed by police officer Darren Wilson. Some members of Emerson joined the protests that followed. Reverend Taves, a Canadian citizen, was concerned that if she joined the protest and was arrested, she could be deported. So she didn't go, and rather than preach herself about the protest that she did not attend, she invited members of her congregation into the pulpit one Sunday to give testimonials about what they had witnessed. One of the speakers described the officer's actions in Ferguson as police brutality. 
And four members of their small congregation stood up in their pews and walked out. What followed was months of infighting, accusations, harsh words, and hurt feelings. As I heard Reverend Taves describe it, the congregation had no common framework or vocabulary for discussing race. They had not yet done any of the difficult work of opening up a dialogue about white privilege. They were at odds over what actions the church should take to raise awareness and combat racism. Some members felt the church needed to support this police. Others had begun a weekly vigil outside a nearby upscale shopping mall. Just a handful of people for one hour every Saturday morning, holding up signs and trying to raise awareness of racial injustice. Reverend Taves described a church that was torn apart by their different responses to Ferguson. They were now trying to backfill with trainings on racial justice and working to bring their people back together. It was a frightening cautionary tale about the importance of intentional, structured conversations around race and white privilege. Day three was the big trip to Selma. 500 conference attendees loaded into coach buses, a road trip complete with singing the traditional tunes of the civil rights movement. That was one great thing about the conference, we sang a whole heck of a lot. The buses led us off in Selma about a half mile from the bridge. We met up with about another 150 or so UUs from congregations around the south, drove in just for the day, and began walking toward the bridge. We stopped at Brown Chapel AME Church, where Martin Luther King had preached in the place to which the marchers retreated on Bloody Sunday, about 10 or 12 blocks from the bridge. We stopped because there was no place we could go. The streets were filled with people. There may have been an actual reenactment of the bridge crossing. To this day, I have no idea. There were too many people. If there was a front to the march, we couldn't see it. We waited for the crowd to start moving, and eventually we walked, or shuffled, as it were, toward the bridge. There didn't seem to be much marching. Selma is not a pleasant town to walk through. The signs of abject poverty are everywhere in burnt-out houses and boarded-up storefronts. I've heard it said that the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. You think you want voting rights? Watch what happens when we ignore you for 50 years. Selma, Ferguson, Ferguson, Selma. I don't think this is what people were fighting for. Crossing the bridge was pretty much a disappointment to me. I couldn't get a sense of the moment. There were no plaques or markers. There were no statues or representations of what had happened there and where it had happened. Katie and I did stop at the top of the bridge and watched all the groups go by. A lot of youth groups, a lot of matching t-shirts. Uh, there, there was a big takeaway, but it didn't come to me at the time. It relates back to some of my initial questions about going to Selma. When Justin had first raised the trip, one of my initial reactions was, is this just gonna be a bunch of white people descending on Selma, marching around and then going home? I didn't wanna be a part of some white spectacle. I figured if the UUA was planning a big conference, then other churches and synagogues would be doing the same thing. Sure enough, our group of 500 or 600 UUs was easily more than 90% white. There were at least 10,000 people in Selma that day, probably tens of thousands. And it wasn't until the next day, driving back to the airport, that it dawned on me 
we were the only white group that I saw amongst the thousands of people who were there. I checked this out with other people too. This is not just my selective memory. Everyone else confirmed, yes, yeah, no, we didn't see other white groups there. This was incongruous to me. How is it that the commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights March was important enough for tens of thousands of African Americans to plan and travel to Selma and only one group of white people wanted to show up? And what if we didn't show up? Would there have been no one there to say that racial justice is important to white people? That the call of being white allies to the struggle for racial equality is more than just talk? I'm glad I, I'm glad I went to Selma. There were messages I needed to hear that I needed to bring back to you all. I learned that there is work that each of us can do in our own ways to build relationships that will have the potential to make a difference in our lives and possibly transform us. I learned that the racial justice journey that our church has been on must continue. As one of your trustees, I can tell you there will be no turnaround Tuesday for this church. We will continue with the trainings the conversations and the social action. Each of us will find a way forward that suits us. Some of us will go to conferences. Some will show up at city council meetings or on 35W. Some will work to change the name of Lake Calhoun because if we don't show up, it's possible that nobody will. May it be so, and amen.